0: Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I'm your host, Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I'm a board-certified physician nutrition specialist. And I started this podcast to take the latest science and really help you figure out what you should do, can do, and eventually will do when it comes to food, fitness, and everything that's involved with helping you become the best version of yourself. My guest today, I am so beyond excited to have uh, Dr. Christopher Gardner, who's a professor of medicine um, at Stanford University in, correct me if I'm wrong, Christopher, the Department of Nutrition Science or in the medical school itself.
1: So we don't have one. So we have a Stanford Prevention Research Center, which is one of the divisions of the Department of Medicine. It's very public health oriented, but Stanford doesn't have a school of public health.
0: Wow. Okay, we need to change that too, but. Okay. Anyways, Dr. Christopher Gardner has really been uh influential in in the nu- to say in the nutrition world and and his accolades and representation on different committees trying to influence public health and teach us, you know, really not just what to eat, but also how for optimal health and I think that's a really important variable. So Dr. Gardner, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I'm really like my everybody's making fun of me because I'm like a kid in a candy store. This is like the best, and I'm very excited about this interview just because I have so many questions for you. So welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks, pleasure to be here. I'll do the best I can. There's a lot of questions out yeah, there. Yeah,
0: I there are a lot of questions, and I mean, actually, you know, I think that's something I love that you said that right off the bat because it's something that I struggle with because. Everybody wants answers in nutrition. And, you know, I've been, as you know, a clinician practicing nutrition for 22 years now. And um, nutrition science is complex, and people do not understand how difficult it is to do these types of studies. I mean, I was talking to my mother about this last night where, you know, most people can't even remember what they ate yesterday, you know, and right. and to say, hey, how much red meat did you eat 10 years ago? Let's see if you have colon cancer now. You know, it is really, really hard to do nutrition research. It's not like there's, you know, a blood pressure drug and you give somebody a pill for three months and then you measure their blood pressure again. So, you know, I think it's really important for people to realize that, you know, experts in nutrition like yourself, it's not that you... Don't know the answers. It's that it's very hard to get down to those, you know, actually true answers because of how complex nutrition science is.
1: Yep, absolutely. My two new favorite phrases, Melina, are "instead of what" and "with what."
0: Instead of what and with what? That's an. In- I love that. What go? I I got instead of what, but what is the with what? To explain that one a little bit more.
1: Okay, so just for kicks, we recently did a, a study with the alternative meat uh, products. So we did a beyond meat versus red meat, and we picked a number of servings per day, and we picked a duration. And, you know, at the end of the day, we were looking at cardiovascular disease risk factors. But who just eats a red meat burger or a beyond meat burger? So we actually had to say, okay, it's a crossover study. You're doing both of these. If you're going to eat them on a whole grain, organic, whatever bun in one phase, you have to do it on the other phase. You can't switch. But if you're having a white bun and you're you know, doing a McDonald's style thing and you've got two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, and only the patty differs, you have to keep all those things the same. And so, oh, maybe switching from red meat to beyond meat is a good deal. But what if it's slathered with bacon? and cheese and mayonnaise and a white bun would you really still expect the same benefits because hey doc i showed up i'm not sure what's wrong here i I switched over to the plant-based meat and my blood pressure's still up my weight's up my cholesterol's up what's happening what did you eat it with right
0: Got it. Oh my God. I love that so much. And I'm gonna really go deep on that first. But so tell us, uh, you know, I, I love that. That's the swap meat study that you did. Um, so what were what did what did you find?
1: So we found that when we did two servings a day for eight weeks in about 40 people who crossed over and did both in different order, their trimethylamine oxide was lower on the plant meat, and this is a sort of an emerging heart disease risk factor. I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with this. Yeah, this is
0: TMAO something- is the abbreviation that you may have heard in the media for those of you who aren't familiar with the uh, long name.
1: <laughs> long name, Stan Hazen, Cleveland Clinic, came up with this and he's been working on this for years. So that was one of our outcomes. LDL cholesterol went down.
0: That's the bad uh, cholesterol.
1: Yeah, yeah, bad cholesterol went down. And here's a really odd one. Weight went down. It didn't went. Didn't go down very much, Melina. It went down like a, just a pound or two. But in the world of statistical significance, if, if your readers go through this with you or your listeners go through this with you sometimes, a statistical significance isn't always the magnitude of difference. It's also the consistency. Right. So if everybody goes down a pound or two, I don't really think the pound or two is clinically relevant, but it's kind of stunning. And that's what it was. Sort of everybody in the plant-based phase was a pound or two lighter. So the three statistically significant things were lower weight, lower LDL cholesterol, lower TMAO on the plant-based. Nothing was better on the red meat. One of the things that the plant-based, the alternative plant-based meats have been getting slammed for is being high sodium, saying, Oh my God, it's gonna raise your blood pressure.
0: And saturated fat, right?
1: And but that's so LDL cholesterol went down because saturated fat went down and fiber went up. So that made total sense that the LDL Mm -hmm. went down. There's no fiber in red meat and there is in these plant-based meats, but blood pressure was identical in both phases. And actually overall sodium was identical in both phases. Even though the plant-based burgers have sodium in them, when you buy them, when you give people a red meat patty, they don't just eat it, they salt it. And Mm -hmm. so in the end, I actually thought it was kind of significant that blood pressure change was not significant. They'd been getting slammed for raising blood pressure and in our controlled randomized trial, it wasn't. So three benefits for plant meat, uh, no benefits for the red meat when we tried to match them on two servings a day.
0: So there was nothing else in the study that was different?
1: Nope. Yep. Glucose didn't change. Insulin didn't change. The other No, parameters. I mean, in
0: terms but of the diet intervention, intervention, that's the only thing that you changed was two servings of plant-based versus two servings of red meat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, can we do this just for a minute? So when we do these studies, as you said, there's observational epidemiology where you ask them what they ate and you get them to remember and you wait to see if they live or die 50 years later. That's hard. Right. <laughs> there's a the kind of study I like to do where we give them real food and in this case, we did deliver the red meat and we went to a San Francisco, you know, organic, regenerative farming type quality red meat place. Oh, wow. For the red meat and prov- bought it and provided it. And we bought it and provided the Beyond Meat. Everything else was on their own. We had to get them to promise or commit to, pledge to trying to eat. Okay, if I have oatmeal for breakfast on one phase, I'm going to have oatmeal for breakfast on the other one, even though that's not related. I'm going to have the same kind of bun on the burger. I'm going to use the same kind of condiments. The other study that I know you're aware of is I could have incarcerated them, right? I could have had a building, iron bars, cooked all the food, handed it to them, controlled everything that went on it, which is another really valid way to do this in a very, very rigorous way, but not very generalizable. And so our studies are not perfect when we do this. But we try to make them as rigorous as possible, and they're more generalizable because they're eating at home in the context of real life.
0: Yeah, I think I love I love that idea, and I think that's really important to understand. I I do think I think all of your studies really do a great job in trying to navigate real world. Uh, you know, with having some intervention, something that's different. For those of you who don't understand how research is done, this one is really interesting to me, though, because... Um, I did. I've been asked a lot about these meat substitutes, obviously, it, by patients and also in the media. And, you know, I, I felt like they were fairly high in saturated fat. It's not like it's, you know, a, a black bean burger. I mean, these are pretty, and and also there's a lot of negative press on ultra processed foods. So your, your findings really, you know, the decreased LDL, the decreased TMAO isn't so surprising, although I'm still... Unsure, the real clinical relevance of that, just because things. Agreed. You know, I, I think that's that's a, a maybe relevant. Um, and wait, what was the third one?
1: That wait, was? just a little bit.
0: That's surprising to me. Yeah. And, and I mean, do you have any theories about that? I, I, I mean, first of all, were these people pre-diabetic or anything like that? Because if so, nope. then that might explain it.
1: Generally healthy people, and we, and if you looked at the caloric level, we were providing the same level of calories for the. For the alternative meat and the real meat, and everything else they were supposed to be eating. No one was trying to lose weight. It wasn't a weight loss study. So I can't explain it. It was a very small amount. It was just very interesting that it was so consistent across everybody.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of hypothesis-generating, so maybe, you know, it, it's yeah. certainly, I'm I i, I I'm really wondering, I mean, my first instinct if they were pre-diabetics was to say that it was something to do with the iron or something, you right. know, some of the issues that we know in red meat that can potentially contribute, even though the carnivore people poo-poo that quite a bit, but um, no, I love that. And the blood pressure change, I, I that is significant to me. I mean, I think one of the things with your studies, though, and, and you've done, you do a great job with it, but you and I think this is the only not criticism, but you know, you t- all you tend to keep things really healthy, and it I I, I struggle so much with getting paid. You know, I I know that sounds crazy, and, and maybe you're just being more ethical, but like even you know one of my you know the study that I you know I I've talked to you a lot about the diet fit study where you were looking at you know and, and this is a really exciting area, I think, in, in nutrition and in medicine in general, the idea of making things more individualized for the person. And and that was really the goal, I think, of that study. And you were, you know, uh, ahead of even what the, you know, the NIH 2020-2030 initiative for precision nutrition. But I mean... Uh, You know, that study, I still, I still don't buy the insulin resistance part of it, but I, I still struggle with that just because of my own clinical practice. And, and, but, you know, I think the, for me, the take home was with that study, which for listeners, just to explain it a little bit, it was, it was a study that looked at whether people responded better to low fat or low carb, um, based on their genetics. Uh, and also whether they were responsive to insulin or not. Am I, am I describing that correctly?
1: Yeah, we were looking for a personalized precision nutrition approach. Yes.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, a, a, definitely a passion and everybody's trying to do that. It's certainly the holy grail. And, and basically, I mean, I, I think what was interesting to me is you fed both of those groups a very, very healthy talk about the diet intervention because, and then I want my listeners, cause again, the podcast is called practically healthy and it just your interventions seem really much healthier than the average. And I know that's what we're aspiring to, but, um, so what, what was the diet intervention in both of those? Cause I, I, you know, I love that study and I think it's a, it's a, you know, one of the, best that has been done in this field. And, you know, we can only learn and grow from it and do subgroup analysis like I want to do someday.
1: (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to introduce a new term equipoise. And I'm going to bring back the instead of what? Okay, So I think in this field, one of the challenges is, if you have diet A versus B, and let's call it low carb and low fat, I can find you papers that say low fat is better than low carb, or low carb is better than low fat. Mm -hmm. And if you have any kind of bias hidden or not, It's pretty easy to make a super healthy low carb diet and a crappy low fat one that's got lots of added sugar and refined grain. That's low fat, so does low fat. Or you can make, oh my God, we're gonna have beans and lentils and vegetables and stuff. And these guys are gonna get grizzle and butter and lard. And I'm gonna think of all the disgusting high fat things that are low carb that I can get. Oh my God, what a surprise, low carb wins one and low-carb wins the other. God, those scientists just can't agree. Right. And really, it's the instead of what. And so, the term equipoise to me is, did you make them equal in terms of equally challenging? Uh, There's one of my favorite low-carb, low-fat studies where low-fat, they almost had to do nothing to change. And low-carb, it was so low, they had to pay attention to everything, every single day. And so, I think, oh, low-fat, you're pretty much already there. Good Fortunate for you, you got randomized to that. You don't have to make many changes. How how could you expect not making many changes to have an effect? Right. So what we did in our diet fit study was we asked, uh, this is going to sound silly, but we called it limbo titrate quality. And the limbo was, can you get down to 20 grams of fat or 20 grams of carb a day initially just to anchor you really low? And people... Who might not realize this the average american eats probably 200 to 400 grams of carbs a day and they eat 90 to 100 or more grams of fat per day so 20 is an enormous change it's very very you really have to restrict all the majority of sources of fat and carb to do that and then we said all right This is mostly to anchor you really low. We have a study where we're actually trying to see if some people are predisposed to do better on one diet or the other. And because we've randomly assigned you, you might have got randomly assigned to the one that isn't going to work best for you and hard for you. And we want to respect you as an individual. If you're really hungry, if you're feeling deprived, that isn't something that you could maintain. So after you've Achieve that 20 grams a day. Go ahead and add five or 10 grams back the next week. How are you feeling now? Okay, add five or 10 grams more if you're still feeling deprived and you can't continue it. Do this until you can look us in the eye and say, you know what, Professor Gardner, this is it. This is the lowest I can go. But if this works for me, I could maintain this when the study's done and I'd be excited about it when it's done. So, Melina, we gave everybody sort of the flexibility to reach their own low level, of carb or fat but one of the last tenets of this was quality so it was limbo go really low titrate find this place that's low but please don't buy low fat cookie or low carb chips that's correct go to the farmer's market cook for yourself we're going to give you lots of help with the health professional to have the best quality carbon low fat diet so a funny thing happened from this is that one of my colleagues who is a low carb enthusiast Mm -hmm the end of the study said christopher you screwed up the study you spent all these millions of dollars and you messed up and i said how did i do that i said well you told both low carb and low fat to not have refined grain or added sugar and i said what how does that mean i messed up all the professionals i know health professionals would say those are bad for you whether you're low fat or low carb he says yeah but when people go low fat they eat refined grain and added right. sugar, which I think is what you were getting to earlier, yes. is I by, by seeking this equipoise, by trying to make them both healthy diets, I was trying to give them both the best chance to do well, but it also wasn't realistic because that's not what the American public does. And I also think the same would be true for something like keto. People don't understand the keto diet. It's actually right. a very high-fat diet not a high protein diet we just finished one of those studies
0: yeah I want to talk about that next so
1: <laughs> the American public thinks it's all protein right and actually if you eat a lot of protein it gets turned into carbs and throws right. you out of ketosis and so yes that was uh, that was the approach we took for the diets which I think was appropriate but you're right could be critiqued as yeah but that's not realistic
0: yeah. Well, I think – so I'll tell you what I learned from it because, you know, as you know, I, 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 I'm sure that I have my own bias about uh, insulin resistance and, and the role of – car. I, I, I know I do, but it, it, it comes from 22 years of experience seeing patients, so I'm allowed to have a little uh, – an opinion, um, yes. you know. But what I really took home from that was, you know, first and foremost – I need to focus on quality with patients, and also with you know media communications and books, and focusing on whole foods, minimizing you know ultra processed foods in particular, and as you said, the refined grains and sugar. And if I don't do that as step one, nothing else matters. You know, I, I can put them on Wait. any what the macros, but. You know, I I do think, and, and from, from my practice, I do think that, you know, the, the insulin sensitivity part is a little bit more nuanced. And I do find, not that people have to go ultra low carb, because I find, first of all, that most women don't do well on those types of diets. And they're also not very livable, as you talk about. But, and then I, I do, and this is where it's going to be interesting. And I was going to ask you what you thought about, because you were very early on in the genetic side. Of things um, and the the three snips, the three little parts of your DNA. For listeners who don't know what that is, um, you know, now in retrospect, you know, may not have been the most robust for what you were specifically looking to show. So, you know, have you is that would you agree that there I, there is some potential still where we may be able to be more. Uh, personalized with people's genetics or their microbiome or any of the new omics sure. fields, layering that on top, of but, but starting first with with quality.
1: Right. So, I, yeah, I think the microbiome and the genetics could provide some great insights to personalization, but I can promise your listeners, nobody's going to end up genetically being predisposed to the cinnamon bun diet <laughs> or the green jelly bean diet. Like, I'm holding out. Maybe I'm the one who's supposed to be eating cotton candy. No, it's not going to happen. If you eat a whole-food, plant-based diet, and then some of you are more low-carb or more low-fat or more high-protein, yes, that is totally possible. But the foundation of this, regardless of genetics, is likely to be fairly similar. And to be fair, we did have these three single nucleotide polymorphisms, these three deviations, in the genetics, and the reason we had pursued that, Melina, was because a group had gone into our old A to Z weight loss study, that was Atkins, Zone, Ornish, and a traditional health professionals approach. They went back and looked at the genetics, and they said, we have a hypothesis about this combination I see. of three SNPs, and so that was hypothesis generating, and then we got funded to test it, and yeah. when we tested it, it didn't work out. And I now actually am on a scientific advisory board for Zoe, which is a personalized nutrition group out of the UK with a huge group of of university-based investigators. And they started with a group of a 1,000 twins that they've been studying. They're measuring sleep, microbiome, genome, everything else. And when it all comes together for things like glucose responses to food or triglycerides, genetics is a very small component of what they're finding and in all the genetics done work that's been done for overweight and obesity of the 50 to 100 different genetic deviations or these snips that you mentioned all together they're only explaining about five percent of the variability that they find so it's not the good news is you're not cursed oh i have these genes and i'm cursed i'll never be better the The sad news is that that's not going to be the way to say, oh, you should be eating low carb and you should be eating low fat. We thought there were going to be much more, uh, many more answers if we delved into that. And so far, it's been very hard to see something really substantive that would be practical to help someone.
0: Yeah, no, I agree because I've been using um, nutrigenetics in my practice for about seven years now, more on an experimental way, honestly. I mean, my... You know, and 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 my hope still for um, nutrigenetics is is the low fat versus low carb is that's a moot point. I, I think the quality is the most important, and and things that you talk about. In your new study, which I want to make sure I have time to discuss, but what I, I'm still hopeful that at least because we're opening the door to a wider variety of dietary patterns. So again, to tease your new study, Mediterranean diet versus healthier keto. Um, my hope would be that I could look at something like the ApoA2 SNP and tell somebody, you know, based on that. Keto may not be the best for you because of your higher response to saturated fat, you know, that association. So not necessarily telling people exactly, but making just kind of, or, you know, you might wanna consider a little bit more protein than the average person to control your appetite. Although I was looking back, and so for me it's just, it's just kind of fine-tuning a little bit. If there's if there's one or two points, because also, I mean, one of the things is it's just a data dump, right? I mean, if somebody has 20 different SNPs and some of them may be conflicting, what do you do? Um, to try to high level, you know, even, I mean, I don't even need genetics. If you have a family history of diabetes, I'm going to know that, you know, you, <laughs> you're at higher risk. Of, so I don't need a genetic, you know, risk score for diabetes. I can just ask you, does anybody in your family have diabetes? But yes. little nuance things. And for me, actually, it's my mu- genetics are much more useful for, um, you know, micronutrients. So to mm-hmm. explain, and and this is also to explain like why everybody thinks that new nutrition scientists don't know what they're talking about, because one week we need vitamin D, the next week we don't. Maybe it's in the genetics. Maybe it's the vitamin D receptor. Maybe it's salt sensitivity genetics, things like that, where there's a subgroup that is more salt sensitive that we know. So for me, I'm using it more in the micronutrients in my practice. but um, And the insulin resistance, thing, that's a whole nother conversation. I won't bore my listeners, because that's like my obsession that I spend a lot of time on in my practice. And and, uh, and research as well. But, you know, jumping forward, well, I, I mean, I do, I was going to say though, looking back, I looked back at the A to Z study. So for those of you that uh, aren't familiar with it, which is, you know, probably a majority of people, because it made headlines back in 2007, right? Yeah. You were, you compared <clears throat> um, the zone, Uh, which is, you know, Uh, 40-30-30. The Ornish diet, which is very low in fat, supposed to reverse heart disease. Um, The Atkins diet, which was kind of the keto of the time back then, high fat. Um, And the, what was the fourth one?
1: It was the Learn Manual by Kelly Brownell, which is basically a traditional health professionals approach food pyramid
0: right? The traditional stuff. And so just summarize your findings a little bit from that study. And then I'll tell you what I noticed about that study that made me think that even me being trying to be precise with genetics and may not even be useful because people are going to do what they're going to do. But what what, so the results of that study remind us?
1: Yeah, and those diets were picked so that Atkins would be the lowest carb, then zone the next lowest, then a food pyramid thing would be more traditional than Ornish would be higher in carb than anybody else. At the end of the day, statistically, the only two diets that were different than one another for weight loss in 300 women were the Atkins and Zone diets. Those were the two low-carb diets. So the whole hypothesis had been, oh, we're going to have this spread of carbs so that we can see between high-carb, low-carb, high-fat, low-fat, which is best. The only difference in weight was between The two lowest carb diets which is kind of a
0: so wait one was lower and one was higher so the zone they had less weight loss
1: right the zone had the least weight loss of anyone and the atkins had the most weight loss of anyone but technically ornish and learn were not different than either of them the other thing that we saw because it was a one-year study melina was that if you tracked a trajectory The weight that had been lost was coming back on faster for the Atkins group. Even though they were the group that lost the most weight, it seemed to be coming back on faster and we had to quit at 12 months. If you kind of track these lines further, it looked like you would have predicted. They would have all been at a very similar place, but the thing that that study did for me is I made what I call waterfall plots out of the data, which is I made one bar for every participant and I tracked (laughs) And compared head-to-head, not the average, but just the spread of difference, and what we found that was, I thought illuminating for me was that in all four diet groups, some of the women lost 50 and 60 pounds, and in all four diet groups, some of the women gained five and 10 pounds. In a weight loss study, they gained weight, and those weren't outliers. When you looked at these graphs, it weren't the, oh, there's a couple outliers. No, It was a continuum everywhere from losing 50 pounds to gaining 10. There was somebody, a woman at every step along the way. And so when you looked at the pattern of variability of weight loss across the four diets, they looked identical. It was staggering. It's like, okay, this can't be that one diet is better than another. It must be that certain diets are are better for certain people. That was back in 2007 and sort of led me on this, ah, there's got to be something to this personalization or precision because they got the same advice, they read the same book. How can they all have all four groups have such a massive difference in response?
0: So, did you do any? I mean, that's a you know a great great question, and I'm sure that ultimately led to the Diet Fit study, which was 2018. But did you do any subgroup analysis? Did you do any further studies where you actually? <clears throat> maybe the women who did better preferred that diet like did they like it like i personally there's no way i could do atkins i just couldn't um it's just not I don't like eating like that. So I would really, really have struggled to be in that group and would probably have rebelled and not been so compliant. So did you, what, did you do any, cause I know you, there's a lot of studies that branch off from a lot of your studies because they've been so important in our field.
1: And we did do a sub analysis of just the Atkins and just the Ornish folks as being the lowest carb and the lowest fat and the group that did the least well was the one assigned to Ornish, who is the most insulin resistant. And so this I'm sure makes a lot of sense in your brain is yes. that we people <laughs> who are insulin resistant and told them to go very low fat, which meant very high carb. Now, I got to tell you a really funny one. And you got to prom- have all your listeners promise not to tell because we're just about to submit yet another uh, paper. So we took the diet fits population, Melina, and we took the 10% it got the lowest in carb and the lowest in fat, and we're kind of calling it the keto-like group and the Ornish-like group because they got so low in carb and so low in fat. And actually, the 10% that they were most adherent at three months had almost identical weight loss, almost identical insulin sensitivity. But we we then followed these folks out to 12 months, the ones that, who were doing the best at lowering fat and carb, And this is true to what you were speaking of before. Stunningly, the folks who were really good at going low fat and being Ornish-like at three months, at 12 months, were eating twice as much refined grain as they had at the beginning of the study. So part of, even though we told them not to do that, the way they had achieved that really low fat because it's so... Con- oh my God! So many things have fat, and how much fat, and what right. should I... Choose? Okay, I'm focused. Low fat. I'm gonna really keep this low fat. They had accommodated by eating high refined grain, and so those folks thinking back to our A to Z study in this other paper that we, a secondary paper that we published off the main paper, I think that's what it was. The ones we assigned to Ornish were eating more refined grain, and that was messing up their insulin sensitivity and making it hard for them to lose weight. And so for those folks, it looked like they should be on a low carb diet, not a low fat study, this subset of the population that wasn't really ready for all those carbs. Now in diet fits, we kind of eliminated that by focusing on the quality and saying everybody get rid of refined grain and added sugar, which I think is an important question. But you and others have said, yeah, but that's there's a practical implication here that we have to make the listeners aware of. That if they're oversimplistically doing low-carbon, low-fat, right, they're probably going to do it with refined grain and added sugar.
0: So wait, with the ten percent now, you didn't you didn't say what you found in terms of weight loss. It was the the weight loss was equivalent at yes, twelve in months. Yes,
1: uh, uh, Yes, at twelve months. Yeah, the only the only thing that stuck out at twelve months really was. Well, there's two things. There's a lipid profile and then there's the weight. So the weight was very similar throughout. And the folks who were most successful at being extreme, they did that just well. Insulin and glucose are actually quite similar. Okay. So the thing that differed was the folks who were the most keto-like at first, if you go out 12 months, had better triglycerides, better HDL cholesterol, worse LDL cholesterol. And as you probably know, if we want to get into this for your listeners, the LDLs, we didn't measure this, but they were probably the type of particle that's less, ath- less atherogenic because when triglycerides go down and HDLs go up, it's likely that the LDL particles don't carry the same atherogenicity as if triglycerides and HDLs don't change. Could be measuring Apo B, could be looking at particle size. That's probably too much for today, but
0: yeah, no, but and and just for the listeners, ather- so they're less the, the type of bad cholesterol is less likely to be mm-hmm. causing the heart problems, heart disease. So that's what just for atherogenic means. So this it's a great segue to um, your current study. Although I do want to ask you one question about the um, swap meat study that I forgot. Okay. Did you check their gut bacteria? Because that's my issue with. You know, the red meat keto type of diet. So, did you check their gut bacteria in the swap meat study?
1: So, that's going to be a second paper. Justin and Erica Sonnenberg are looking at it right now. Okay. Uh, I want to give a plug for our name for people who didn't get it. Swap meat is the study with appetizing plant food, a meat eating alternative trial. That's what swap meat means, red meat versus the other. And I I do want to, since you brought me back to that, I want to do the instead of what thing. I got a lot of criticisms on that. What do you mean? Those are ultra processed foods. You're promoting those. And my response is always, it was instead of red meat. I didn't say instead of a lentil burger. If it's a black bean burger or a lentil burger or lentil salad, I would pick that. That's not what the question was. The question was instead of red meat burgers, and sausages with the plant-based burgers and the plant-based sausages. So, all of all of those subtle things go together. And the one reason it's going to be really interesting to look at the swap meat microbiome, Melina, is we actually saw a different order effect. And so, here's the idea with the TMAO, this thing that I agree, it's an emerging risk factor. We're not exactly sure how important it is. That tends to go up partly because of some metabolism in the microbiome. For the group that did red meat first and then plant meat second, what we saw was the TMAO go up. And then when they switched to plant meat, it plummeted back down and stayed low. We had another group that did plant meat first and then they got red meat and their, oh crap, their TMAO didn't go up. It didn't increase when they went in that order. And we said, ah, we weren't expecting this. We looked in the literature, there's a little bit of literature to suggest that plant-based or vegan diets stop harboring the bacteria that make that conversion. And then when they got hit with the red meat, we probably didn't see the TMAO because we had modified the, mic- the environment of their microbiome, and so we're very excited to look at the microbiome results from that and they're they're underway right now. They didn't fit in the same paper. It's very microbiome is very complicated and you can't just say, and here's a paragraph of what happened in the microbiome. It's a it's a whole separate paper.
0: Yeah, no, I'm excited too. Our listeners are probably like, "Why are they both so excited about this?" But it has important implications for again, instead of and with what and and you know that that that's what we're going towards. So we're running out of time, but let's talk about your most recent study, which is why I reached out to you because I saw it, uh, I read it about it on CNN. So the keto med study, and I, I have, uh yeah. Offline, I want to ask you a lot more questions about this because I have okay. uh, the first thing is I don't think because as as you alluded to because of the protein amount I don't think it's actually a ketogenic diet to start with. But tell us about that study and what you found and um, really what what the practical implications are. And I think people are going to be uh you know understand after hearing us talk for the last forty minutes what they're going to be. <laughs>
1: So, this is set up in a very specific way because I actually think uh, keto g- agrees with all the other health professionals about less added sugar and refined grain and more vegetables. And the thing that I'm a little frustrated with is that keto is often compared to a low-fat diet when, in fact, I think… Low-carb. Well, you
0: mean low-carb? No, compared
1: to Oh, low compared
0: fat. to. Okay. Yeah. Right? Sorry, sorry, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, I think that's pretty easy to show difference when the standard low-fat diet is high in refined grain and added sugars. So we thought, well, why don't we compare it to another lower carb diet that's, um, it's just not as high in, uh, in other carbs as the refined grain and sugar. And so we wanted to pick sort of a very fatty Mediterranean diet, right? We've got lots of evidence for the benefits of Mediterranean diet, lots of flexibility, Mediterranean diet tastes great. So we had three things that were similar. Both groups were told to get rid of added sugar, refined grain, and and have lots of vegetables. And then the keto group was told to have no beans, no fruits, except for a couple of berries here and there, and no grains at all, whether they're whole intact grains or not. The Mediterranean group was told to enjoy and emphasize beans and fruits and whole intact grains. And so really the research question was, if you do get rid of the added sugars and refined grains and eat a lot of vegetables, is there an added benefit? to then getting rid of those three additional things that basically all health professionals promote. So the way this study was conducted over 12 weeks with people with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes was we had a food delivery service provide food for four weeks so that they could be instantly adherent. And then for eight weeks, they had to make their own food. So one was more rigorous and one was more generalizable. And the main outcome was glycosylated hemoglobin for these people with type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes. And at the end of the 12 weeks on each one, the uh, both groups lost or dropped HbA1c, and it was not statistically significant. If you looked across all the other parameters, the glucose and insulin parameters were quite similar. Liver enzyme went down. That was similar. Weight went down 7% for one and 8% for the other. The only things that were statistically significant was that keto was higher in LDL, whereas Mediterranean had lowered LDL. If you looked at triglyceride, both diets lowered triglycerides as you might imagine for this low carb, higher fat Mediterranean diet, but keto lowered it even more, significantly more than the Mediterranean diet. So it's almost like it's a wash. They both lowered glycosylated hemoglobin, keto worse for LDL, better for triglyceride and Mediterranean the opposite. Go ahead.
0: No, but the, with the with the LDL, I mean, and I understand the argument about particle size, that's a whole nother, probably more scientific based podcast. But I actually thought with the 15% increase versus the 5% decrease, that the results were even more statistically significant for the difference in cholesterol. To the point where I'm not sure that it could be 100% attributed to particle size, especially when you're looking at the Mediterranean diet. So yeah. that one, yep. I, I don't want to oversell the, the you know, and, and also the effect on triglycerides at that level, clinically for me, I would be looking more at the LDL cholesterol in in risk assessment for a patient.
1: Yeah. Yeah because they both saw a decrease in triglyceride. But one of the interesting aspects of the study design, Melina, was after doing a crossover and having them do both, we said the study's over. Can we come back in 12 weeks and see what you're doing? You got this food provided for you. You had eight weeks of somebody telling you how to eat it. You've been wearing continuous glucose monitors. I'm wearing one too. I
0: want to talk about that. (laughs) Nice.
1: You've been seeing what this has been doing. What are you going to choose to do on your own now that the study's over? And when we looked and scored them according to a keto score a whole uh well formulated ketogenic diet score and a mediterranean diet score they were eating more mediterranean than keto 12 weeks later which i'm you know i'm i'm seeing as being something very hard for most people some people can do it but most people find it hard to stick to and i'm going to guess one of your practical podcast pieces of advice is one of the best diets for you is the one you can stick with is it doing something extreme and stoic and you're craving food and you can really do it in time to get into the bathing suit or go to the wedding but not after that then then what what good is it if you can't maintain it so we thought this sustainability the greater sustainability of the more mediterranean like diet was an important conclusion from the study that we did
0: yeah and again i mean there were you know there were some some things that you know i think are, are, are not something that the public really does in terms of the emphasis on, at least not in this country, the emphasis on fish, maybe in both groups. So there was an increase in omega-3 fatty acid oh. levels in both groups, which I thought was interesting and certainly something positive overall. Again, I love that you have a picture of, you know, and this is another thing. There's just so much we can talk about, but in nutrition, there are a lot of things that we agree on, you know, yes. that most people that we should be eating, well, maybe the keto people don't believe in fiber, but, um, but also there was a nutrient difference in the, like there were three nutrients. I thought it was interesting. I thought there were uh, many interesting things, but the people in the Mediterranean group clearly ate more fiber. So again, I would be interested in their gut biome data, even though you explain a little bit about how that can offset each other with the ketones supporting the gut health, but, yeah. um, and nutrients like magnesium and folate. Particularly magnesium. I was surprised that because we know that that is important for insulin resistance and blood sugar regulation. Um, I would be interested in the absolute differences because most Americans are deficient in magnesium 70%. So, um, you know, I, I thought it was fascinating. Um, and it is, it is in line with the fact that the, uh, American Dietetic Association now says, you know, a healthy keto, healthy low carb, healthy whatever. With the caveat being healthy. So the problem is with, with my patients when they go keto, it's pork rinds and bacon and, you know, copious amounts of cheese and then all these keto packaged foods, you know, that are just, it's like, but so, I mean, I guess, you know, everything that you do just reinforces the fact that we should be focusing on the commonalities, the common themes as experts, and then yeah. just helping people find their own what's going to work best. I still think there's hope for more personalization. But some of that is probably food preference. It's culture. It's lifestyle. It's budget. I mean, if you're on a fixed income, you're not going to be able to afford to eat high quality meats. You're going to beans are going to be more affordable. So all these yeah. things really have to factor in too. um, But I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm your biggest fan with all your studies. I love all this stuff. And I, and I love, I love dissecting them, which is probably more than our listeners are interested in just because I think, you know, there's, there's so much interesting, but I'm always coming back to the practical side of things. So, so on that level, as we're wrapping up, let, let's get into what So the A to Z study, the diet fit study, the keto med study, you're working with Zoe. I've been wearing this continuous glucose monitor. I can't figure out what the heck to do with it. Honestly, it's not helping me that much is just kind of driving me crazy so if you have any insight on that maybe you can uh uh you know it it certainly hasn't helped me refine my diet at all i think the stress of it is probably making my blood sugar go up more often (laughs) but so what for our listeners in your you know whatever decades of, of research um what should we all be doing to stay practically healthy
1: Yeah. And I think you've hit on it multiple times here. So I actually helped the American Diabetes Association with some guideline updates that they did in 2019. It was really funny because I was like the token vegan and they had a token keto person there. And they were really trying to have all perspectives. And I thought, wow, there's going to be a lot of bickering. And there wasn't. We looked at the evidence and we agreed about almost everything and said around the periphery. There are some things we don't agree on completely, but we actually don't have enough studies to come down hard that one is right or the other. And so what we continue to find is that America's diet is about 40% added sugar and refined grain. It's about 10% good quality carbs. It's about 10% saturated mono and and polyunsaturated fat. It's about 10% animal protein and 5% plant protein. Everything else is in the five to 10% range, mostly 10. Crappy carbs are 40%. If we could get rid of the crappy carbs, what's gonna happen is some people are gonna do better adding more carbs, legumes and whole grains and fruits. Some people I think are gonna do better with seeds and avocados and fatty fish. I think that's gonna be that level of personalization. Some people are gonna do better with more beans and some lean meat and fish for maybe more protein. But the key is how ubiquitous all those low quality carbs are the white bread the bagel the candies the cookies the chips the having dessert with every meal if we address that so so many of the so much of this bickering would go away that we actually have agreed on this it's a huge issue for insulin glucose underlying inflammation ah and if we if we showed how much we agreed i think we could get the public to make a bigger movement if they're just focused on how much we disagree then say ah Those scientists, those nutritionists, they never agree. I'm just gonna go have whatever I want because they're gonna change your mind next week. If you look at things like dietary guidelines that get updated every five years and you compare them head to head since 1980, there's hardly any change. It seems like there's change because of some of the media headlines. We found this today, even though we found that yesterday. And I think that gets back to our instead of what, with what. They designed two studies and in name they sounded the same one was low carb, one was low fat, one was keto, one was Ornish. But if you looked at how they really followed them, they followed them differently, partly probably because the way the investigator set it up. And at its base, there's much more agreement than it appears.
0: So I think the take home for listeners, honestly, based on this, no matter what, whether you're vegan or keto, having fewer refined grains and added sugars and more vegetables. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not even going to talk about fruit and whole grain, more vegetables, fewer. I mean, if you made that one change, you would profoundly influence not only your weight, but your long-term health. So I think, um, you know, it's it's great that you're doing all these studies. I, I wish we had another hour because I, I you have done so many really fascinating studies over the years and and your a lot of your work, you know, that you're working on now with improving, you know, institutional foods. I definitely I think that's extraordinary and essential. This has to be built into the fabric of our society to to win this battle long term. Um uh, so Thank you for your contribution to the field. I, I can't tell you how much I uh, appreciate and respect you and your work and uh, taking the time to come on the podcast. I really hope our listeners, uh, you know, embrace everything that we've discussed today because it is, it is really the essence of, of nutrition science and, and eating for optimal health.
1: Thanks, Melina. The one last pearl I'd love to give the listeners is yes. my new collaborations with the chefs. And this group we call the Menus of Change University Research Collaborative. So we're working with chefs in institutions like colleges and work sites. And unapologetic deliciousness is the key. You're going to get people to eat more vegetables. You don't want mushy, overcooked, bland vegetables. Chefs are awesome at this. They can make cultural cuisine that's this world global fusion of flavors and spices. And they can make them taste great we're not going to eat them unless they taste good that and the fascinating thing is they can they really can there's a lot of people doing this and some of it's really easy so hopefully we're going to work on unapologetic deliciousness more
0: Delicious. That sounds great. Well, I don't know if you know, but I've written two books on the healing powers of herbs and spices. And so for me, the fact that they add flavor and and amplify, you know, the the taste and sit and and the experience, I think is extraordinary. So I love that. And uh, maybe you can even teach me to cook through your. uh <laughs> That's my dirty little secret: is I've read all these books and they have all these wonderful recipes, few of which I rarely make because I'm the laziest cook ever. But I do add herbs and spices to everything. So I've got that going for me. But um, thank you again, Professor Gardner. I appreciate your time. And uh, thank you for joining us on Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina.
1: Lots of fun to be with you, Molina. Thanks.
0: I really hope that you found the information in this podcast helpful. I know I did, and I welcome your feedback because I'm doing this for you. So if there's topics that you wanna learn about, something that you wanna learn more about, if there's something that you wanna explain further that I've talked about, please let me know comment on my Instagram page, send me an email, melina at drmelina.com and definitely hit that subscribe button because I'm going to have great new content every single week and I don't want you to miss an episode. That's it for now. Stay practically healthy.